Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mets are amazing, 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 amazing. There's a fly ball hit out to left. Waiting is Jones. The Mets are the world champions. Here's the one, two, three. Check him out. Steva has 19 strikeouts. Swung on, hit on the ground towards first. Milner has the ball. Looks to McGraw. It's over. The New York Mets have won the tournament. The New York Mets have won the tournament. The ground ball quickly is a fair ball. It's by Buckner. Down the third night. The Mets will win the ball. He's striking out. Striking out. The Mets have won the World Series. 2-1 delivery. Robin Ventura. Jones on the run. This one has a chance. Come run. Mike Piazza and the Mets lead three to two. To left field. Floyd. And after running rough shot over the National League, the Mets have a title to show for it. 2006 National League East champions. Here's the payoff pitch from Familia to Fowler on the way. And it's in there. Strike three called. The Mets win the pennant. The New York Mets have won the National League pennant. Put it in the box. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, February the 24th, 2019. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at MetsmerizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you can leave me a rating on iTunes, it'd be greatly appreciated. It helps get the show out there. Good, bad, and different. I'm not looking for you to give me any kind of plug that I don't deserve, but obviously getting extra ratings gives people an idea of what kind of product we have over here, and I'm looking to get as many listeners and continue to grow and build the audience and the content and the product as much as possible. Hope everybody's doing well. Uh, had a chance to catch up and watch uh, some baseball this weekend. Even though uh, it's very much from a weather point of view, feels very far away from baseball season. It's really not. It's about a month away. And uh, to get a chance to watch some uh, spring training baseball. Joining me in just a couple of minutes is Rich Catino, 9870SPN, contributor over at MetsmerizedOnline.com. Has a book coming out later this summer on the 1969 Mets called The Miracle of 69. Get him a little plug there. He's been down in Port St. Lucie for about a week, and this podcast will pretty much piggyback on what we did last week with Tim Healy of Newsday, where we set the tone of spring training and began to take a look at what we will be expecting with the 2019 Mets, how the team comes together, how it's being built. Now, most of that podcast was 
dominated by Jacob deGrom and the contract extension, which that is still a fluid situation. We talked a little bit about Robinson Cano and and how the fans are going to react to him. But now it's really about what we see on the field and what is transpiring. And I think there's two things that dominated the news landscape with the Mets this week, and it's Peter Alonzo. Now, actually, Pete Alonzo, so i got to get that right. It's Pete Alonzo. Peter, Pete, don't, Pete, don't call me Peter Alonzo. Uh, and uh, we'll talk about him. And the focus, and you had a couple of different articles in the New York Post, which to me is the, the, the feature columnist in the Post, the Vaqueros, the Davidoffs, the Kernans. Those are the gold standard right now in this city with really good content. Each of them, uh, both Davidoff and Kernan, so to speak, uh, came out with some very good pieces about the Mets. Davidoff talked about Van Wagenen and what he's trying to do and the culture he's trying to build here. And part of that is a very open line of communication with the front office, which includes Van Wagenen spending some time in the clubhouse. Now, I haven't covered the team at different points in the last 20 years, but I do know Steve Phillips and Omar Minaya were more present in the clubhouse. In the case of Omar Minaya, had Tony Bernazard spent a lot of time in the clubhouse, and that turned out to be pretty disastrous uh, for Omar, for Willie Randolph and then ultimately Omar. Uh, Steve Phillips, I think it's well-documented a lot of the battles that he and Bobby Valentine had, whereas Sandy Alderson was taking a more traditional approach where the clubhouse is the manager's domain. And I know there's some question as to how is this going to work out? Is this going to be a positive development for Mickey Calloway, who let's face it, will probably be a bit on the hot seat if this team doesn't perform. Not the manager that Van Wagenen hired, uh, had some criticisms last year, although I think there's been some positive developments with the pitching staff. You could credit Dave Island for some of that, and I think that Callaway has shown that philosophically he has a lot of uh, good attributes and traits. Uh, Clearly, it's a results-based business. So, how will it work if your boss is hanging out in the clubhouse? And I know a lot of people say it's a bad thing. The players could circumvent the uh, the manager. And I think that only is a bad thing if Van Wagenen allows it to be a bad thing. I think getting a climate and a pulse of your team, of what's going on, is important. Now, I understand what Brian Cashman says in exactly this same kind of thing. His feeling is, if I spend time in the clubhouse, I get too close to the players, I then cannot make critical decisions free of emotion. That's good uh, in theory. I think we all have emotion and attachments, and I think Van Wagenen coming in uh, really has no attachment unless you count the attachment he has as many of these players were clients of his at CAA. I'm not so sure in his new role, and I keep going back to this for people who question it. A guy like Van Wagenen that has been at the top of his craft, moved up to the top of the division of a major agency, not a little mom-and-pop shop, these guys know what it takes to be successful, and they don't allow peripheral nonsense to get in their way. And if you think moving up to the top of your division at, a, at an agency, and I've said this before, uh, one of the traits is uh, you know holding on to relationships or not making calculated decisions that are free of emotion. Then you really don't understand what it takes to be successful in any business, especially that business. So uh, having an open line of communication, understanding the climate and the culture of your team, I think is important. I think Van Wagenen is trying to live up to his uh, basic missive at the beginning of this, of he being hired, is that he wants to be more of a player, hands-on general manager. I think part of that is understanding what the players need. That doesn't mean coddling them. That doesn't mean giving them everything what they want, but also understanding what the needs are. I think Callaway has talked about from a communication standpoint, what he failed to do last year and really not spend a lot of time in the clubhouse, uh, really talked about balancing the duties he has with the media and, and all the other things that come with the job of manager and how that might have eaten into him spending some time with his ball club. So I think they clearly want to change that. I, I, I like how, and you heard the clip, and you've heard, probably heard it a billion times, the Mets are trying to go in here and establish that, hey, our goal is to win. We don't care that some people are going to talk about the holes we have. We don't care what people are going to say about not having Cespedes. We don't care what projection systems say. We have our own projection systems. And off the bat, if we don't believe this team can compete and the goal is to win a division, then what the heck are we doing here? Because if your goal is not to put the the 
everything at the top of the mantle to start the year looking at the top, then you're never going to get there. And I think that that's very healthy. I don't think that it's just uh, braggadocious. Some people have compared it to Davey Johnson and what he did in 1986 with the Mets. I don't. I think that was a different type of motivational tactic that came at a time when the Mets uh, really needed to get over the hump with a team that may have been in their head a little bit in the St. Louis Cardinals. Then here it's just changing the mindset to we'll try to we are going to succeed. This is the goal that we're out to achieve. I also like reading what Kevin Kernan wrote about how Mickey Calloway has really boiled a lot of the drills in spring to basics, uh, relay throws, bunting, some really boring things that in the course of 162 games don't really attract fans to seats or make for highlight reels, but things that are important for winning the ball games. And Keith Hernandez has talked about it a ton of times on the broadcast. Uh, these are the things that are lacking a lot in today's game, infield practice, things like that. And I don't care how long you've been in the game. I don't care how good you are. Uh, repetition and routine and things becoming almost second nature are so important that uh, when when you do over-practice them to a certain degree, they become normal. I mean, how many times have you seen over the last five, six, seven years Mets pitchers look totally disinterested in, in bunting? And yeah, Syndergaard and when Harvey was here and DeGrom and even Lugo, uh, Mats, they were all pretty decent hitters. So all of Most m- members of the staff have hit home runs at some point. But they're still pitchers, and they're going to be asked to bunt and move runners over. And, and if you can't do that, if you can't do that fundamental thing, uh, that adds up over the course of a season. Those are runners that are put in the scoring position. Those are free outs for the pitcher. If you're going to give them a free out, at least make it productive by moving a runner over. Uh, These are things that are important, putting pressure on the defense, being aggressive, even if it's not, you know, being the speediest team, but running the bases aggressively and with smarts uh, and fundamentally defensively. And that's been the biggest downfall of this team over the last five or six years is how poor their defense is, but how poor fundamentally they are defensively. Work and hard work and putting all the boring hard work in and setting that tone with veterans setting that tone is important, but what's most impressive, and I think it really ties into all this, is how Pete Alonso. Here's a kid who wasn't hyped, and last year became hyped. And by all accounts, we have Bernie Pleskov on this this off season, and we've cited a bunch of reports about how offensively he's there. I mean, he's a guy that's going to have power. He, he's shown that he can hit the opposite field. It doesn't sound like anybody has said these are the warning signs. Will there be valleys? Sure. There's eventually going to be some valleys with any player, but all accounts are this guy is ready to be, at least the beginning of the year, some kind of impact right-handed bat, maybe towards the bottom of the lineup. Maybe as the year goes on, you can move him up into a more critical part of the lineup, but you don't want to give him too much too soon. But he struggles defensively, and he struggled defensively his first game of spring. He made a, uh, you know, not a great uh, play in the field. Here he's out there working the next day. And, he, and that's what people have said, that he's made the most progress defensively out of anyone in the organization, he still has a little bit to go, and he hasn't stopped working. He knows what his Achilles heel is. He understands what may keep him out of the big leagues. And he could take the attitude as, hey, I'm going to hit home runs. So, you know, whatever I give you at, at first uh, is enough. No, that's not the attitude he's taking. And that is a refreshing thing. That's the kind of players you want in your 25-man roster. You want guys that are going to go out there and grind and do all these little things day in and day out the boring things, the things that made guys like Cal Ripken great and Derek Jeter. It wasn't necessarily just their talent. It was the little nuances, the little things. I remember Cal Ripken talking about all the routines he used to do, how important it was, and and how all that built up into he being able to have uh, that streak and being able to play at a pretty high level over 162 games for many, many years. And these are the kind of things that – you want to instill that it comes from starts the front office and comes on down. And I think the energy and enthusiasm of Van Wagenen putting the chips to the center of the table, which, you know, creates a sense of urgency, uh, accountability, lets everybody know this is the expectation. We're not just here to kind of go about things and try. We're here to set a gold standard. And if you shoot for the moon, you're going to fall in a pretty good place. And as, as long as the talent is pretty, pretty solid, I think they have some pretty solid talent. Certainly, there's some questions that have to be answered. Depth, health, uh, offensively, who knows how this team is going to consistently score. We'll see. I think Alonzo is going to play a big part in that. And if Alonzo can 
provide the right-handed bat in some capacity. You're not expecting him to be Cespedes, but in some capacity could provide that right-handed bat, then uh, you might not be in as bad shape from the right side as some may think. Because I do have some concerns about right-handed hitting uh, in this lineup because Ramos is a catcher. He's not always going to be in the lineup. Uh, Keon Broxton has had a spotty career to date. Your big hitters in the outfield are left-handed. Todd Frazier is, is shown to be somewhat of a feast or famine player. Ahmed Rosario is not a, a, a middle-of-the-order run-producing bat. Uh, you know, Jed Lowry is, you know, is injured right now. And, and, you know, who knows what he could produce early on. So you really have to look at this as Pete Alonso is going to be a big part of potentially solving what is the biggest offensive issue right now is right-handed, run-producing power in that Mets lineup. So let's take a quick break. When we return, Rich Catino, 98.7 ESPN, at Catino9 on Twitter, has a book coming out about the 69 Mets to celebrate their 50th anniversary of their first World Series title. He'll join me live from Port St. Lucie. Let's hear what he has to say about Brody Van Wagen and Mickey Calloway, Peter Alonzo. No, Pete Alonzo. Let me correct myself. Second mistake I've made about that. And uh, what else he's seen throughout his first week down in Port St. Lucie in this early part of spring training 2019. We'll be back with more Talking Mets podcast right after this. I look forward to uh, to showing people that uh, that we're a team to be reckoned with, and uh, let's not be shy about wanting to be to be the best. And I, I fully expect us to be uh, to be competitive and to be a, to be a winning team. And uh, our goal is to win a championship, and it starts with the division. So come get us. Alonzo drives one deep to center over the head of Pache, and it's out of here. Pete Alonzo on the first pitching season spring training displays the power that Met fans have been salivating for. We're back and joining us live from Port St. Lucie, our good friend, 9870 SPN, also doing some work for MetsMoreOnline.com is Rich Catino. Rich. Welcome to the program. Let's uh, let's kick it off. How's uh, it's almost a week you down there? How's everything going in uh, Florida so far? Pretty much as I expected. Um, I'm not going to give you a weather report because, from how I hear it, it's been up north. That's just going to make people jealous and wondering when warm weather's coming to New York. But I think from a team standpoint, I still feel very strongly that this team is a solid playoff contender, and I've seen nothing that's dispelled that notion for me in the week I've been down here. You uh, can check out Rich on Twitter at Catino9. He also has a book coming out, uh, The Miracle of 1969, and I'm sure we'll get to that uh, a little bit. Uh, Let's start out with what everyone's been talking about and the stars so far of the show in a lot of ways, and it's not been any of the players on the field, but it's been Brody Van Wagenen. I know you had a chance to meet Brody at the Baseball Writers' Dinner back in January. And, you know, from all accounts, uh, the fans love him. He seems to be a bit of a rock star over there in Port St. Lucie. But most importantly, he spearheaded a different energy level. And I guess you want to use the term culture change, but a really high energy that I think this team has lacked for a long time, even for a lot of the 2015 World Series appearance season. It really has, and if I had to put a word on it, it's that his notion is we're all part of a team and we have to care much as much about each other as we do about ourselves. Nobody cares more about each other than themselves. No one's that selfless. But I think it's created an environment down here where I see Robinson Cano sitting with Jeff McNeil. I see a lot of interaction with veteran players and young players and young players and young players. And I think that that's a very positive thing because I think the thing about spring training that most fans miss that don't get a chance to come to it is that that's where your culture change is really going to evolve. When the players are all together, when the players are interacting, they're eating together, they're living in the same, you know, areas, they're going to the same gas stations their families see each other because the families are are down here as well. And I think that's when you start to kind of feel good about yourselves. And I think that the Met players to a person, and I've talked to Michael Conforto and Todd Frazier at length about this, 
they feel that the, not only did Rody go out and get players that will help him, but he got out, went out and got players who have all-star already on their resume. And that's the thing most people are excited about in this uh, 2019 spring training in Port St. Lucie. Ken David Ott of the New York Post wrote about how Brody is going to be um, more visible in the clubhouse. And that's somewhat controversial for a general manager. Uh, you know, going back in Mets history, Steve Phillips and Omar Minaya were known to be more fixtures in the clubhouse. Their managers, I don't know if they particularly cared for that. Sandy Alderson was uh, a lot different. Uh, Van Wagenen talks about it being uh, important to keep the line of communication with the players open. I know Brian Cashman talks about how it creates a bit of a conflict of interest because his job is to make sure he finds the 25 best players who may not always be those 25 best guys at any point in time in the clubhouse. You're always looking to improve. What are your thoughts? Can this create an issue for a manager like Mickey Calloway who had a somewhat rough first season and um, maybe a bit on the hot seat? I don't really think so because Brody is around – to hear the honest thoughts of the people in the clubhouse. He's not there to get on a, a soapbox and dish out how he feels things should be done. I think he's there to listen to their concerns, if they have any, and address them. And I can tell you this, and, and a lot of the listeners know this, and a lot don't, but in addition to my sports reporting, I do a lot of managing, managing ad sales groups. And I can tell you this for a fact that People, when they work for you, they really appreciate when you have the notion that you don't work for them, you work with them. And that's the notion I get down here from Brody, that they're in this together and they work with each other, not hierarchy and someone working for someone and yelling and telling you you want something done that way. I think everything is done in a respectful fashion, and I think that's been – what I've seen down here from Brody and what, what I saw all off season from him. And um, I think that's a huge positive. I think Omar was a lot like that. And Steve Phillips was a lot like that. Sandy wasn't, but Sandy came from more of the old school. And I call this kind of managing new age managing. And I really believe in it because it's the way I manage personnel. And I think that it works. I think that, you have to look at the personnel that you have and understand that their quality of life away from the ballpark is important because if they're happy in their quality of life away from the ballpark, they're going to become better workers at the ballpark or at the business. So I think so highly of Brody Van Wagen and that I think not only that baseball, a baseball team needs him, I think any business needs a person with that kind of philosophy and I think it's going to show up on the field this year. I think the Mets are going to win the National League East. I had a meeting down here with a bunch of the Booster Club uh, Met fans down here, and they asked me for a prediction. So, Mike, I'm going to be the first one to give it to you on the air. The Mets will be 92-70 and 70 this year. They will win the NL East, and they will clinch it on a Saturday afternoon in Cincinnati in September, just as they did in 2015 bold statement here in uh well not even march yet it's in late february from rich catino uh he's joining us right now you can check him out at 9870 spn he's doing some good stuff over at recently sat down with michael conforto and todd frazier you can check out those interviews if you go to metsmorizedonline.com and i know rich is going to be doing some podcasting as well kevin kernan wrote about um some of the things that mickey calloway uh, is doing on the field. And you know last year that during that June swoon, and it was a swoon, it was, uh, you know, 1962 Mets level. You and I were doing some uh, radio programs over at 5.40 a.m. on Long Island at that time, and those were frustrating mm-hmm. times. And one of the things that the Mets uh, did very poorly was uh, the fundamentals, base running and, and what have you. And, and for years, I think, even the pitchers have been so bad at something as simple as bunting. You know, sometimes you'd see – the effort uh, lacking just to do something that, yeah, I know is not sexy, not exciting, but really important, especially when you're trying to win one-run ball games. So Kevin wrote about uh, the setting up bunting stations in, um, uh, you know, at the ballpark. Uh, they have, you know, drills where they're just hitting the cutoff man. I know some of the fans in the audience may be rolling their eyes and saying, well, these are big leaguers. They, 
you know, should be taught this uh, from little league through high school, through college, through the minor leagues. But fundamentals, and you hear Keith Hernandez talk about it all the time on the broadcast. These are things that have been uh, passed over for you know home runs and batting practice and analytics work and computer work and and all this other stuff. And I think it's refreshing to hear them get back to the basics because this is what's going to win ball games. Doing a lot of little things uh, in addition to the big things like hitting the three run home run, like you know, working on the uh, the the important new age kind of philosophies of the game. I really believe that. And the other day, the Mets had an intra-squad game. And while the game's going on, they had a bunning drill by the, you know, by the dugout. And it was a different bunning drill than I've ever seen before in my life. And Brandon Nimmo was the first guy I saw that did it. And he was being told sacrifice. And then he's been told bunt for base hit, bunt for base hit to third baseline pull the bunt to the second baseman. And they were all not only having a bunting drill, but the different kinds of bunts that you may need in a game, working on each of those things. The other thing that the Mets are doing a lot of, Mike, is that they are attacking the shifts and having drills when attack the shifts. And, you know, Mickey Cowley and I had a conversation, and I said to him, I thought it was refreshing to see managers finally do what I think they need to do for the shift, not ban the shift. In fact, if I was a manager in baseball, I wouldn't want to ban the shift. I would welcome the shift because the shift will create situations where you can win games by going against the shift. And he talked about it yesterday, Mickey, and he said, you know, you don't want a player to have a 2-0 pitch down the middle and not try to pull it. But especially left-handed hitters who are really bearing the brunt of the shift, if you got a two-strike count and the ball's on the outside part of the plate and you got the infield open, take the base hit and, and just keep the inning rolling that way. And I think that um, that's the only way I think you're going to beat the shift, by attacking it to take what's given you, and then you'll see less shifts. And we see Robinson Cano doing this in all of his at-bats in the spring training game he had yes he played yesterday where he really attacked the part of the field that was shifting and Mickey said I think Robinson has it in his mind that he's a leader on this team and it's something that we want to do we want to show him that he can do it and I also think he's trying to tell teams you better think twice before you shift me this year and that kind of thinking forward thinking really makes me feel that things are being done in this camp that have some thought behind it and some plan behind it, and it's great to see. And you know how I feel about the shifts. I don't like them, but I would not make them illegal. I, as a manager, would take advantage of the shift and win some games and then force teams to maybe come off the shift that way. Not ban the shift with a rule in baseball, Mike, but ban the shift because of the way you attack it and beat it. And I think that's the way you will start limiting shifts in the sport of baseball. Yeah, now, listen, organic change is something I'm always for. I know that that's not necessarily in vogue in today's uh, day and age. Uh, Mickey Calloway, you just mentioned him. Uh, I know he had some tough times last year. Uh, I, I think he's got an unfair uh, take from the media here. I like some of the things he says. I like some of the philosophies he has. Uh, I think he's been very honest about what his shortcomings were last year. He specifically is talked about how he needed to do a better job of spending time in the clubhouse and communicating with the players and the, and the challenges of meeting the demands, especially the media demands in New York. Are you seeing anything different? Because, Mickey, a lot of the things he's talking about this year, he talked to a certain degree during last spring when he came on board. Maybe the learning curve didn't necessarily allow him to execute it the way he wanted to, but are you seeing differences with Mickey and the coaching staff um, from last uh, spring when you were in Port St. Lucie? Well, I'm seeing differences when Mickey's dealings with the media, and one thing happened today. The Mets are having a split squad, squad game this week, and he's going to travel to Orlando, and Jim Riggleman's going to manage the team in the split squad in Port St. Lucie. And when he was asked about it, he said, I have to give Jim some reps. After all, i got to get him ready to be interim manager. And it was just such a funny response because we all know Mickey's going to be under the microscope this year and Jim Riggleman's his bench coach. He has had major league experience yet. He made a joke about it that the reason why he wants him back here is because he doesn't want him to not be prepared to be an interim manager. If that happens, 
and everyone laughed in the, in the in the press conference. And that's not a sense of humor position I would have seen last year from Mickey. So I think that he's taken the bull by the horn, so to speak. And I'll tell you personally with me, and, and it's something I share with you, Mike, off the air, and I'll share it on the air. I went up to Mickey the last weekend of the season last year. Uh, I know we were in the middle of all the David Wright stuff. But on the Friday night, I said to him, you know, Mickey, I want to develop a better relationship with you next year. And I put all that blame on me, not on you. I should have done a better job of getting to know you. And we talked a lot in the off season, And I said, I have one little homework assignment for you to do, though, Mickey. I want you to look at the 1968 Mets, their win total, and the way that team performed from a pitching standpoint and the way there was some disappointment in both the bullpen and in the batting order and what happened the following year. And not only did he do it, but in his pregame presser the next on the Sunday, the last day of the regular season, he didn't mention my name, but he said, because someone asked him a question, you know, how are things going to be next year, you think? And he said, well, I was told to check out the 68 Mets, and they were 73 and 89, and we're going to have even more wins than they had. And it just relayed to me that Mickey, I don't know, maybe he was catering to me a little bit, but he made a joke out of something that was serious, and I think managers in New York that have been successful have learned that that's not something you do all the time, but it's definitely something that you do to make yourself not the focus of the question. And I think that he's done a good job of that in, in preseason and um, in, in these exhibition games. A much better job than he did a year ago, and I think that's part of the learning curve of managing New York. On the other side of town, I've watched some Aaron Boone's press conferences, and my sense is that Aaron Boone is not as friendly with the media as he was last year. So who knows, maybe the honeymoon's over a little bit because of what happened in the playoffs. I don't know, but it's almost like I've seen a little bit of a role reversal in New York where Aaron Boone's not as chummy with the media, and Callaway has become much more chummy with the media. So it's something we'll, we'll not know for sure until both teams get to their first crisis point of the season and the manager has to address it. But it's just an observation that I've made early on that, that things are a little different than they were last year with the media. Pete Alonzo, the, uh, the Mets, one of the big concerns is right-handed power because Ioannis Cispedes will be out. Well, Alonzo's shown a lot of that his first couple of games of spring training. And, I mean, everybody I spoke to had a scout on earlier this offseason on the program, talked about how he believes as a hitter he's the real deal. Defense is the question, and he made a, a somewhat of a bad play the first spring training game. But here he is uh, earlier today out there working again. The work ethic has been on, uh, you know, been noticed. And I don't think it's for show. I don't think the Mets are sing, sending him out there for show so that the media gets off his case. I think the kid really wants to make it. I think he understands that if he's going to be a regular, yes, his bat's going to be a big part of that. But uh, if he wants to play, especially in the National League, unless the DH gets adopted sometime in the near future, which is a possibility but not a reality right now, he needs to play better defense at first. And sometimes defense at first I think could be a little underrated in general. Um, you got to like the work ethic, and you got to like what you see so far. Now there's going to be some valleys, and we'll learn about Pete Alonzo. Pete, don't call me Peter Alonzo uh, when those valleys hit. But so far you got to like the responses to um, – some of the early uh, challenges on the defensive front. No question. And it's not just the simple plays that he's, you know, taking grounders and getting the throws from infielders. After games, he's working on things like cutoffs, throws to second, um, the the 3-1 put-out play, okay, and working. I've seen him do it every day since I've been down here. So I also think he's a power bat that can kind of help the Mets. I mean – I could definitely see him in a lineup putting an exclamation point on an inning, and instead of the Mets having a 2-1 lead after three, they all of a sudden have a 5-1 lead. So he definitely has power. The home run yesterday was very impressive because it went to the big part of the ballpark, and it had a tremendous amount of top spin on it that kind of drove it further and further over the fence. And you don't see that from a power hitter too much. You see power hitters in line drive homers, but that topspin on the ball in the air, you don't see that a lot. And I've seen it from him not only in the intra-squad games, but also in yesterday's game as well. The other thing that I think he's worked on offensively that I think is much better than it was 12 months ago is his pitch selection. Um, yesterday's home run, he came to the plate 
with a thought that if I see a slider, I'm hitting it on the first pitch. It was a fastball. He was going to let it go. And he saw the pitch, and he hit a home run for it. And I, he don't run with it, I should say. And that goes to show me that he's planning these at-bats out in a much more defined way than he did 12 months ago. And getting the counts 1-0, 2-1 instead of 0-1, 0-2. And pitch selection helps you do that. And I think those are things that he's he definitely worked on in the offseason and all year in the minor league system last year. And I see a hitter that's a 40% better hitter, I would say, if I was putting a number on it, than at this time last year. He's also become much better hitting the other way. He's become great at fouling off tough pitches. There's a lot of things he's doing at the plate that he wasn't doing 12 months ago. And I think if I were running the Mets, unless I see some dramatic downturn in the next five weeks, he'd be my starting first baseman come opening day. Rich Catino, 98.7 ESPN, joining us, giving us some uh, feedback from his week in Port St. Lucie. He'll be down there till early March. And, uh, yes, we uh, we had our pitchers and catchers show last week, but now we got games. And every day there seems to be some kind of new, so far positive development that we can talk about as the 2019 Mets uh, take form. You know, one of the criticisms of this team, Rich, um, is that they really – are going to miss you in Cespedes. They don't have that hub. They don't have a Mike Piazza bat. They don't have Cespedes. They don't have Delgado. They don't have Beltron. And that that may become a problem. A lot of that ties into the fans wanting them to sign Bryce Harper. Uh, you spoke to Michael Conforto. Can Michael Conforto be that bat? Um, are we underrating Robinson Cano and the kind of bat he, ha- he is? Um yeah, I worry a little bit about the right-handed component of the lineup, especially if Alonzo uh, doesn't live up to some expectations. I'm not expecting him to be Paul Goldschmidt, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that it could come from a lot of – Wilson Ramos could be a very important guy in this lineup too. I don't think he's necessarily a power, like 30-40 home run guy, but I think he's a solid RBI guy from the right side. I think, too, that – we got to remember about Robinson Cano is he played 80 games last year and had 50 RBIs. Um, you have to be a math major to figure where I'm going with this, but to me, Cano and Conforto are givens in this lineup. I think they're both going to put up huge numbers. I think Wilson Ramos is going to help out a lot. I think Brandon Nimmo at the top of the order could be an exciting part of the team. I expect Ahmed Rosario to do more from the right side than he did last year. He finished up the second half much better than the first half. Um, And then I also think that there are some complementary bats that, you know, if Juan Lagares ever gets the chance to play center field every day, I think he can, again, he's not going to be a triple crown winner at the plate, but I think he could be a solid 280 to 300 hitter that could run the base as well. And, help the Mets extend innings. So I think from the right-handed side, and when Cespedes comes back, it's even better. But from the right-handed side, Ramos and Alonzo, whoever they have in center field, um, I think are all all things that can help them from the right-handed side. In addition to Todd Frazier, who is not the home run hitter he once was, but he's a much better hitter than he showed last year. So I think there's more balance in the lineup than, than you might think. And obviously the balance would get better when and if Cespedes comes back after the All-Star break. But I think they're going to be fine. I think the Mets are going to score a lot more runs than they did last year. And I also think their bullpen is going to allow them to win games that they didn't win last year. And I think that both of those things are being underrated in people evaluating the Mets. I look at their bullpen. I think it's probably one of the top three or four bullpens in the National League, if not higher than that. I think their lineup is definitely in the top third of the National League, and I think their starting rotation from top to bottom is the best in the National League. And when I look at the roster, I kind of look at that all together, and I say you could do a little less offense with this pitching staff because now you have a bullpen that will back up the pitching staff. And, you know, it was funny. I was watching um, Mets have their bullpens, and they have four mounds. And one day DeGrom was throwing, and Syndergaard was throwing, and Mats was throwing you know, and Wheeler was throwing. And I looked at it and I said, when they have three or four game series in the National League East, these are the arms the other teams are going to have to contend with. And 
that's not going to be a lot of fun for any teams in the National League East, whether it's the Nationals or the Phillies or the Braves. And I see a lot of the Mets this year that I kind of saw from the Braves last year. Now, the Braves got to 90 wins because two of their young players, Acuna and Albies, got there sooner than everyone might have thought they were going to get to the fulcrum of helping their team. They also had better starting pitching than people thought. I look at this Met team and I say to myself, this could be a real breakout year for Conforto. I know he was an all-star once before. It's not like it's coming out of nowhere. I think Ahmed Rosario is going to have a much better year than he had last year. I think they're going to, Wilson Ramos is going to be able to be a solid RBI bat. So I look at this team and I say, I think they have more balance. Obviously when Cespedes comes back, if he's healthy and even last year, Cespedes played, and I'm, I'm wondering if I have these numbers right. I think he played 38 games, and in those 38 games, he had 28 RBIs. So even if he's not hitting homers, Cespedes is a guy that could drive in runs. And I think there's more balance here than people think, and that's why I think the Mets are going to be a 90-plus win team because I think across the board they have balance and they have depth. And we haven't even talked about a guy like J.D. Davis, who I think is a very interesting guy to look at, to put him around in various spots in the field. So, Or Jed Lowry, and I know he's hurt right now, but we haven't even talked about those guys yet, and that adds the depth to this team, depth that I think is probably better than it's been in 10 years with the Mets. That brings me to, as we round up the segment here, and I ask this of everybody who goes down there because – uh, I always like to hear who are the names that maybe we're not talking about. And, and one of the things that is important to note, and I, I said this last week and I, and I reiterated this in the opening, as I look at what is the potential 25-man roster opening day, yeah, you mentioned Lowry may be hurt and Darno may not be ready and you know there's a possibility they go with maybe one less bullpen arm, but there's not a lot of spots available on this roster. And that's pretty much the uh, the work of Brody and, and the front office solidifying, uh, you know, guys who are really, you know, going to play every day. But there may be a couple of opportunities for someone to sneak on that 25-man roster. Uh, who are we not looking at? Who are we not talking about? Is it, well, you mentioned J.D. Davis. Is it somebody else? Because if you really break it down, if everything goes according to plan, there's maybe one, maybe two spots up for grabs here with this 25-man well, I think the catching situation is interesting because Ramos is going to play a bulk of the games, but is your backup catcher Darno or is your backup catcher Mezzarocco? And is it Mezzarocco because Darno may start the season maybe on the disabled list? Is it Darno because you feel he can give you more offense? Darno hasn't even gotten to the point where he's working throwing the ball from the catching position yet. So he's a ways away from even playing in a spring training game. So that's going to be an interesting dynamic to see. And in Mesoraco, I think the Mets have a pretty good insurance policy with a guy that played with them last year, a guy that the pitchers know, and a guy that, you know, can give you an occasional long ball off the bench. Um, So I think that's an interesting one, Mesoraco or Darno. I also think another interesting one um, is in the outfield, Keon Broxton, who – is not even being talked about all that much other than the fact that we found out that he, in his home he has 16 dogs that he owns. We found that out today. and uh, I don't know if I've ever heard of anyone having that many dogs in the house. And That's a lot I don't of know, dogs. Maybe I got some... three. That three is enough for me. 16, Jesus. Oh, my God. <laughs> maybe he, maybe he runs with them and that keeps him in shape. But he's a terrific defensive outfielder as well. So the Ligaris-Broxton decision, that could be an interesting one to look at as well. And then the other part of it is, let's assume for a minute that Lowry is healthy. Is he your everyday third baseman? And if he's not, where does that leave Todd Frazier? And where does that leave Peter Alonso? That's a trio of players, along with J.D. Davis, that are going to decide who's playing first, who's playing third. I know Frazier's been working out of both positions, so he's probably going to play a little of both. Maybe if Alonzo doesn't make the team, Frazier is the regular first baseman, and the regular third baseman is Lowry. Maybe it's J.D. Davis. So maybe Robinson Cano plays a little first down the line. I don't know, but that's going to be interesting to see how the corner spots in the infield pair out once uh, they have to make the decisions of coming north uh, for opening, opening day in D.C. in late March. 
Um, the Miracle in 1969, how the New York Mets went from lovable losers to world champions. That's your book that's coming out this year. I believe it's available on Kindle if you want to go to uh, Amazon and get it. But some members of the 69 Mets uh, have been down at spring training. Even uh, Cleon Jones was there reminiscing about and, and maybe setting the record straight about his run-in with Gil Hodges in the outfield. Uh, it's 50 years. I know that many of these stories have been told many times over, but it's always fun to hear them again, and there's a generation of Mets fans that may be hearing them for the first time. So uh, talk about your book. I don't know if you had a chance to run into any of the guys that are that are down there. I know some of them have been talking to, if I'm not mistaken, Art Shamsky and guys like that. We're talking to some of the Mets minor leaguers. Um, give, give us an opportunity to hear about what's going on with your book and, and what the readers can can get from you over the next uh, week to two weeks as you round out your spring training coverage. Well, I think that the book is going to be a look at 1969. There's so many books coming out about 69, including one Art Chansky's writing. And I wanted the book to be a little different, so I'm taking people through my nine-year-old eyes as a nine-year-old witnessing it. And how important that whole concept of the Miracle Mets was to my life, kind of telling me that nothing's impossible and dreams are not only permissible, they're mandatory in life. And I think that also taking you through what a special time that was, that 18-month period where the Jets won the Super Bowl, the Mets won the World Series, and the Knicks won the NBA title all in the space of about 18 months. And each of them on their road to doing it beat a Baltimore team, each of the teams. Um, I talked to Cleon at great length uh, again you know, this week about a couple of, of things that I wanted to talk to him about and that, you know, he hit 341 in 1969. That's an incredible average. But to tell you how different baseball was, that was only the third best average in the National League that year. And talked a lot about Tommy Agee. And, and one of the things that I'm going to talk about in the book a lot is how Agee came to the Mets in 68, and he didn't really have a great year in 68. And Hodges stuck with him, knowing that he was the guy he wanted to patrol center field. And Cleon has told me this. Jerry Kuzman has told me this. A lot of other players have told me that when they saw how much Gill worked hard for Tommy Agee, even when he wasn't playing well, that he won a lot of the players over back in 1968. And when 1969 came, and Ron Swoboda says this to me uh, on a number of occasions about Gil Hodges, the great thing about Gil Hodges was he took this complicated game of baseball, and it could be real complicated, and he made it very simplistic. And... Ron Swoboda says that all the time. Everyone on the bench was used. He used the platoon system for most of the positions aside from left field, center field, shortstop, and catcher. And those guys were always ready to perform. I think the most telling thing I heard this week was, as many of you know that, that remember the 69 series, in game five the Mets were down three to nothing, and when Denon hit a two-run homer and then Al Weiss, Light-hitting Al Weiss hit a homer to tie the game. And two, both, two players, Shamsky and Cranepool, both said to me today, today's manager probably would have taken Al Weiss out for a pinch hitter. But Gill didn't do that, and he knew his players. We don't deal with hunches anymore. Everything is done with numbers. And it's done with numbers because it's easy to discern, and it's easy to... Um, if something goes wrong, say, well, I did it the right way with the numbers. And Gil just wasn't that kind of manager. Gil had a feel for his players, and he had a feel for what they were capable of doing, what they were not so capable of doing. And he got everything out of every player, whether it was Tom Seaver or the 25th man on the roster, say a guy like Rod Gaspar. He got everyone contributed on that team, and I think it was – Unbelievable. The other thing I talked to all of them about, because I wanted to ask them about it this week, is after the Mets won in 1969, they won up Canyons of Heroes, they had to perform on the Ed Sullivan Show, which was the television show at that time. Maybe Rona Martin's Laughing was a little more popular, but the Ed Sullivan Show was one of the longest-running TV shows, variety show. And they sang, had to sing a song, and they sang, you got to have heart, and for Met fans who have to say something to their friends that are Yankee fans, yes, that's the song that was in the movie Damn Yankees. And I think the Mets had a lot of fun with that. Um, they loved it, and they still hear people talk about 
that appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show after they won the World Series. Almost remember it more than they did at a baseball game. So there's so many twists and turns in that year, especially in September. And the other thing I wanted to ask them, Mike, was I want everyone knows how they felt when they won the division and the pennant in the World Series, but I wanted to really get the feeling of that September night when the Mets had a twilight doubleheader against the Expos, that for the first time in the history of their existence, they moved in the first place and talked about it with them. And in some ways they said to me, it was the most exciting night of all the nights because Mets fans had been through such terrible times for the first six years of their existence. They never won an opening day game. They were never at 500 late in the season until they got to 1969. They never lost less than 89 games in any season they played. And now they were heading into first place. And it was just a party night at Shea Stadium. And I can tell you that for a fact because I was there as a nine-year-old kid. And I think... The wonderment of the 69 Mets is you can walk down the street in New York and you say, Miracle Mets. And it doesn't have to be a sports fan, but they know exactly what you're talking about. It is a team that will stand the test of time. They've already done it for 50 years. And I think in a lot of ways, it is one of the great sports teams in the history of sports, never mind in the history of baseball. And um, and I think it, there's so many great things that happened. Gil Hodges had a heart attack in 1968 on September 24th, and a year later to the day, the Mets clinched the division. And when things like that are happening, when you have Steve Cohn striking out 19 Mets and the Mets still win the game with two two-run homers by Ron Swoboda, when you have a doubleheader sweep in Pittsburgh where the pitcher drives in the winning run in each game, one game was Jerry Kuzman, the other was Don Cardwell, when things like that are happening, you know it's your time. And I think that 1969 is just something that I will always remember. People always say, what are the things you remember most of your life? Well, obviously, the loves of your life and your family and things like that. But as a nine-year-old kid, I experienced a world championship for the Mets that I don't know if anything I've ever seen since on a, on any any on a ball field, on an ice rink, maybe the 1980 Lake Placid Olympic team, but that's the only thing that I might put ahead of the Miracle Mets in terms of everything that it created that was a script-like movie. And it's one of the greatest things New York has ever experienced, and I want my book to kind of take people back to the time that were there, and the people that weren't there can feel like they were there, and that's the goal of the book. And the other goal is let's start to get Gil Hodges in the Hall of Fame. Let's start to understand the greatness of Gilbert Raymond Hodges because when he came to the Mets, all the silliness was over. Rich, always a pleasure catching up with you. Glad that you had a chance to give us a little portal into the first week of camp with the Mets. Uh, Be well down there. I know we'll catch up soon. And uh, keep bringing up the good content over at Mets Marized Online and 98.7 ESPN. Okay, my friend? My pleasure, buddy. Always good to talk to you. Stay well, my friend. That's uh, Rich Catino at Catino9 on Twitter. Let's uh, take a quick break, wrap up with final thoughts right after this. Hey, Mets fans. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now. That's Mets, M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, online.com, and get Metsmerized today. We're back. 
Jack, final thoughts. You know, one of the things that I think will come out of this 50th anniversary celebration of the 69 Mets is the debate, which I think some fans may be tired of because every time the Hall of Fame uh, Veterans Committee comes around, they they talk about Gil Hodges getting to the Hall of Fame. And it's a tough call because we've had discussion here about Keith Hernandez and John Olerud and Will Clark, and I even said that if you don't put Will Clark in the Hall of Fame, it's hard to put Gil Hodges in the Hall of Fame. Even though when you go and you look at some advanced stats, Gil Hodges is the top 25 first baseman all time, has better uh, win shares than guys like Carlos Delgado and Don Mattingly. And the, the problem really is that unless you want to put Hodges and his managerial career, which includes a very historic event, and when I talk about the Hall of Fame, I always talk about historic events being one part of the resume that you look for. If you don't put that in, I, I think you got more Don Mattingly here than you have, uh, you know, Jeff Bagwell and some along those lines. I mean, uh, Keith Hernandez has a better Hall of Fame uh, resume, especially with his elite defense and two World Series championships than maybe Gil Hodges. But if you put in the managerial situation – I think that that changes it a little bit. I'm not going to get bothered if he makes the Hall of Fame. I think the bar has been lowered, not just by the BBWAA, but by the Veterans Committee when they just allow uh, guys that they feel uh, were overlooked back in the BBWAA days or guys that put guys in because they feel they measure up better than maybe someone from the steroids era. So it's a little bit of a mess, uh, not something I want to get too deep into. But I have no problem with Gil Hodges and, and he being in the Hall of Fame. I know that that topic and discussion will come into play. I wasn't alive in 1969. I couldn't tell you what kind of manager he was. It sounds like he's the kind of manager that I'd like, disciplined, uh, yet understanding the uh, needs of the players. Sometimes being a player's manager or that term player's manager, which could be sometimes a negative connotation, uh, means holding players accountable for basically the objective or covenant that you put together as a team. You put together as a team that you all want to get together, you want to win this division. Well, here's what it's going to take. Bing, 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 bing. You'll outline it. Yeah, is everybody on board with that? Yeah, sure. Well, at some point, someone's going to go outside that that core covenant, and you got to hold them accountable. And a lot of times, if it's a good team with good veterans, which you hope the Mets have, the veterans will be the ones that will be the first ones that the players who go outside of the rules, so to speak, will have to answer to. And I think Gil Hodges is one of those guys that that was kind of his philosophy from what I see as an outsider reading the uh, quote-unquote history books. So uh, a little interesting take from Rich Catino there wrapping up the segment about the 69 Mets, and I know that there's a ton of books coming out, I think two or three books coming out about the 69 Mets, and I know we're we're going to feature a couple of them on this show. So Stay tuned. We'll have a healthy diet like we did a couple of years ago with the 86 Mets. I think we'll have a healthy diet of 69 Mets talk at various points throughout the 2019 season. Hey, we're out of time. I want to thank Rich Catino. You can check him out on 9870 ESPN, also at com and on Twitter at Catino9. Of course, I want to thank all the good folks at MetsmorizedOnline.com for their support. Send me a tweet at Mike Silver Media, and you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you could leave me a review on iTunes, it'd be greatly appreciated. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back with more Talking Mets podcasts next week. Take care, everybody.
Mike Rowe here with a radical idea. If you want to see more companies make more things in this country, buy more things from more companies who make things in this country. I refer in this case to the incredible t-shirts, sweatshirts, blue jeans, and more made by my friends at American Giant. Everything American Giant makes is made in the United States. And right now, you can take 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com slash Mike. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.